Hi, my name is Amy. Throughout this series, we'll read each psalm as a, as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we recite Psalm 23. I will read the lines marked reader, and you will read the lines marked people. Together we will all read the line marked all at the end. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Altogether, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, that we may have life and have it abundantly. The word of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we ask you that by your Holy Spirit, you would let your word speak to us this morning, and that even our reflection on your word would provoke something deep inside of us beyond just our own thoughts and beyond just our own understanding, but that it would awaken the work of your Spirit in us to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Morning, everybody. Good to see you on this snowy Sunday morning. Thanks for making it out here today. Of course, blue skies, sun shining, the mountains are all dressed in white. I mean, what a gorgeous scene out there. And please be sure to take time and enjoy it as you're walking this morning. Hey, as we begin our reflection, we're in this series here on the book of Psalms, and we started the first couple of weeks talking about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They're both sort of like these double doors into the congregation, if you will. They're like entry points into this collection of songs and prayers. And Psalm 1 talks to us about the individual choices of uh, making sure that we walk in the way of the Lord. And Psalm 2 sets before us the big picture of the world at large and says, live under the reign of the great king of the world. And so the way of God belongs together with the reign of God. And this is how we're supposed to live. And the Psalms are great a book to journey through because unlike any other book of scripture, the Psalms are a collection of songs and prayers. Other books may have sections that are songs and sections that are prayers, but the Psalms, the whole thing is this collection of songs and prayers. And so it's designed to kind of shape our language, shape our language as we pray, as we talk to God, shape our language as we learn what it means to kind of unpack our own hearts before God. And sometimes the Psalms will give us the kind of tools that we need to say what's really in our hearts, to express what's really going on in our souls. And this morning, uh, we're going to jump uh, from Psalm 2 last week all the way. We're going to jump now to Psalm 23. Next week, we'll talk about Psalm 22 as we dive into Lent and talk about the experience of lament. But today, we're talking about Psalm 23, and it is probably the most well-known and well-loved psalm of all. 
Uh, that somewhere along the way, this imagery and this language has filtered into uh, our own vocabulary. Maybe it's just the phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. Or maybe it's still waters. Or maybe it's just the phrase itself, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What is it about this psalm that speaks to us so deeply? Why is this one of the ones, if not the one, that rises above all the others? As I was thinking about that question this week, I was also thinking about some of our most moving and popular stories, whether in books or on the screen, on the big screen. And when you think about it, why is it that our most popular or maybe most well-loved stories usually involve an orphan? I mean, think about it. Let's start with maybe the, the British ones, the Charles Dickens stories. And you think about Oliver Twist and young Pip is this orphan who inherits this fortune. You think, oh, that's so great. Or maybe, sorry, that's great expectations. Or maybe you're thinking about Oliver Twist. Or maybe you're thinking about the secret garden and where the, the character there is an orphan. Or maybe the, on the American side of things, there's Tom Sawyer. And uh, that charming, you know, southern story with all of its rough edges, and you're thinking, oh, well, well, but it's a story of a kid trying to make his way without parents. And then maybe from a little bit north of the border in Canada, eh, you've got Anne of Green Gables and the story of Anne with an E uh, trying to make her way in a new environment and a new home. And then, of course, maybe from pop culture, uh, we've got an old, the old legend of Tarzan, you know, not only growing up without parents, but being raised by apes. And, uh, and, and then you've got Batman, you know, Bruce Wayne, and descends into this cave and bats, and the mythology of Bath Batman's origins vary just a little bit, but what we do know is, what, is that the young boy grew up without his parents. And then, of course, Luke Skywalker. Uh, you know, who learns that there's something actually going on, something special about the dad he never knew. And then there's Ray, who we don't know where she's come from. We don't know if there is anything special or not. Kylo Ren says there's nothing special about her parents, but we don't know if he's lying. <laughs> right? And then maybe my most beloved orphan story of all, Harry Potter. I mean, is there anyone better? than that. What is it about these stories that move us, even though for probably many of us listening to this, that was not exactly our experience. Maybe you grew up without a father or without a mother or some tragedy happened early in life, but, but what is it about the orphan story that somehow has a kind of universal appeal? Maybe, maybe it's that these stories speak to our sense of loneliness in the world, our sense of that we have to make it on our own. And maybe even if you did come from a good home, there comes a time in every person's life where you have to sort of venture beyond and leave the house that you grew up in. And that moment is a moment of profound vulnerability where you feel exposed in the world and you think, whoa, I'm all alone in the cosmos. I, I remember in, in college there was this Christian philosopher. We had to watch some of his video lectures. There was a guy called Francis Schaeffer. And I remember at, at 18 or 19 watching these, these videos. He had this incredible goatee and uh, knee-high socks. And he would talk about the sense of cosmic alienation. And when you're 18 or 19, you think, that's it. 
Not only does that speak to my state in life, it's also a pretty good name for a punk band, you know? Cosmic Alienation. <laughs> and, so, and so there's this sense of who's looking out for me? Is anybody watching over me? Am I alone in the world? And maybe that's the reason why Psalm 23 resonates so deeply with us. Because it addresses the very longing deep in our bones to have a shepherd to have someone care for us. And so the words of this psalm make their way into our vocabulary because it expresses for us a longing that maybe we didn't even really know we had. Yes, I want someone to make sure that there's no lack in my life. Yes, I want someone to lead me beside still waters. Yes, I want to know when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death that someone is with me to comfort me. Yes, I want to know that there's a table being prepared for me. Maybe deep in our bones this psalm speaks to a deeply human longing. And when we think of this, the image of a shepherd itself is more powerful than we might have realized. When I was reading commentaries, preparing and studying for this text uh, for this week, I, I read one of the commentators said that in his opinion, the metaphor of a shepherd is the most comprehensive metaphor in all of the Psalms. And at first I thought, how could that be? I mean, the Lord is my light, the Lord is a rock, the Lord is a strong tower. There's some great metaphors in the Psalms. What is it about the shepherd metaphor that makes it so gripping? And as he went on, he said, think about all that a shepherd would do for his sheep. Think about all the things that a sheep in the ancient world in particular would rely on their shepherd for. Well, there's protection. A shepherd was supposed to protect the sheep. There's provision. It's the shepherd that helps them find pastures and food and all of this stuff. There's healing. It's actually the job description of the shepherd to bind up the, the, the leg or something hurting of a sheep. In a way, the shepherd was like a doctor or a physician to the sheep. And then there's the sense of guidance, making sure that they're not lost. And so if we ask ourselves what a shepherd is, a shepherd at the very least protects, provides, heals, and guides. Now all of a sudden you realize, okay, that is a pretty comprehensive metaphor. That's a big metaphor. That's not just a picture of some painting somewhere of Jesus holding a lamb. This is an image that speaks to some deep human longings for protection, for provision, for wholeness and healing, for guidance so that we don't feel lost in the world or wonder if we're taking wrong turns or made a mistake along the way. Now, why is it that we actually need God to be our shepherd? Why do we have to have God fill this role? Can't we have other people fill this role? I mean, surely there's other people who provide protection and provision and healing and guidance, and that's certainly true. Why is this something that God has to step in and do? There's this powerful passage in Ezekiel 34, and I'm going to take a chance here and guess that most of you are not waking up in the morning and opening your Bibles to Ezekiel as your daily reading, although if you did, you're in for an exciting ride. Ezekiel's one of these prophets that, that uses dramatic imagery to get the attention of God's people, and there's some amazing things Ezekiel says and does. And in Ezekiel 34, God is speaking to him about the leaders in Israel. Shepherd was not just a way of speaking of protection, provision, and healing, and guidance. It was a way of referring to government. It was a way of referring to the institutions and individuals that were supposed to care for God's people. And prophets 
prophets have this annoying habit of telling people off, of calling people to account. And mind you, this is a context where allegedly these kings were appointed by God. So for the prophet to say these things is to say to God's government, to God's chosen ones, God's chosen rulers, that even they are falling short. And I know we may have trouble relating, but just go there with me. Verse 2, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel. Woe is an old English way of, of saying, hate it for you. <laughs> this isn't good. Who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? No, 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 you eat the fat, you wear the wool and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. What's Ezekiel saying? What's God saying through Ezekiel? He's saying, look, you were supposed to care for the weak and the vulnerable. Instead, you exploited their weakness for your own gain. You exploited the weakness. You pushed the marginalized further to the margins, and you took what they did, what little they had for yourself. And then he goes on and he says, You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. If you're looking for a job description of shepherds, it's all of these things said in the affirmative. Where a shepherd is supposed to strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bandage the injured, bring back the strays, seek the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. You've used your power. You've used the rhetoric of order in order to exploit. You've used, you've leveraged the power that you've had to take advantage of the weak. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching for them or seeking for them. Can you imagine? Not only did your actions lead people to feel scattered and alone and scared, you stopped caring that they were even there. You said, eh, oh well. And so God comes out strong, and he says, look, this is the failure of you human shepherds. And even if we can't relate to this in, on, on big scale levels, we can think about it very personally. And to say, were there ever people in our lives that were entrusted with caring for us that actually did the opposite? Were there people in our lives who were entrusted with our care, but that instead did the opposite? Maybe the first reason why we need God as our shepherd is because the people that we look to for protection and provision and healing and guidance will fail us. Now that seems like a strong way to say it. Will fail us? I mean, oh, well, hang on. I've got good parents. I come from a good home. I've done that. Why would you say they will? But we can think of the painful examples of this. Places where parents actually did us wrong and cause harm and hurt and pain. But we can also think that even in the best of homes, human beings will fail, not necessarily because of sin or carnality, but ultimately because of the limits of human frailty. That every human, even at their best, is still a human. 
every human at their best is still a created being and not the creator himself. Every human at its best can never be the source of the protection and provision and guidance and healing that we long for. This is why whenever we make an individual, whether it's a leader or a pastor or a parent or a friend or a spouse, whenever we make a person our ultimate source for these things, we are going to be disappointed. We're going to be let down. At some point, we'll feel the letdown. And maybe it doesn't come in the form of like, you know, a a sin issue or a moral failure. Maybe it just comes with your first introduction to human mortality and frailty. I remember at um, the first funeral I ever attended, I was about eight years old, was the funeral of my children's pastor. And that's a heavy funeral to attend. And in Malaysia, you know, there's not really national parks, there's just jungles and stuff. And so people go, you know, you go out exploring or camping was, quote, unquote, camping was like throwing down a tarp uh, next to a river or something. And so there was a group that had gone on this uh, adventure kind of weekend or whatever, and then the river started flooding, and the pastor went out to try to rescue someone, not a, not a kid, he was there with some other friends, and tried to rescue someone, rescued the person, but in the end couldn't get out of the river himself. And so here we are as a church just totally crushed, because of this story and his tragic death. And I remember sitting in the back of this church, which strangely had chairs just like this, wooden chairs, you know, we're sitting in the back. And and, and I'm walking, taking turns, walking across the front to to view the the coffin and the casket and, and, and thinking, this is, how could this have happened? And it's the first experience of a child as realizing the world is not uh, a, just a charming place. The world has hardship to it. Some of you may have been alerted to that earlier in life than others. Counselors and psychologists, when they talk about this, they talk about the sacred canopy that is designed to cover a child. And then at some point, that sacred canopy gets pierced. And you realize, whoa, there's evil in the world. Whoa, there's something else at work in the world. And again, that can happen in extreme ways, but that can happen in simple, small ways. I talk with young people all the time, and there's always this moment at some point in their adolescence or young adulthood when they begin to realize, oh, I don't know about the faith of my childhood, or I don't know about the church of my youth, or I don't know about the faith of my parents. And something happens where they start to get out in the world, and they think, it's not all as it seemed. People along the way have let me down. I think about this for Holly and I. You know, we have four kids. There's no way that we haven't messed them up in some way. There's no way. I was talking to a parent this week whose kids are grown. And they're like, yeah, we saved for a college fund, but we had a therapy fund that was twice as much, you know. <laughs> so they're going to need it. And as much as we try and as much as we do all the good that we know how to do, there's some sense in which we're humans. We didn't, we didn't do everything. We didn't do it all right. And so if you look to people as your ultimate source, not your It's understandable. People are supposed to provide some of this. But when you look to them as the ultimate source for protection or provision or healing or guidance, they will ultimately fail. And so what happens to us early on in life, whenever it was, maybe you experienced it as a young child, maybe you experienced it later in life, whenever you encounter that experience of of being let down by someone, the instinctive reaction is to then begin to close yourself off and to say, okay, fine, it's not people. People are not the source. People are stupid. People are dumb. But money will never let me down. Stuff, 
power, fame, success, status, influence. Nobody says this, right? Nobody says it outright unless you're listening closely. Unless you're listening closely in the interviews. I'm a big sports fan, so I love listening to athletes, especially athletes at the top of their game, talk about what drives them. And it was almost comical listening to Tom Brady talk about what was motivating him before the Super Bowl. And I'm so glad he didn't get another. Well, he was trying to talk. He was trying to talk like, like he's just been, you know, injured and insulted by all of the people who had counted him out. I'm like, dude, nobody's counting you out right now. You know, like you're the greatest, you know. But he's, he's got this like long litany of all the people that have done him wrong, you know. And this way of saying, well, you know, I mean, there's this chip on my shoulder. You know, I, I'll never forget this. And, never, and he, even Brady was not as bad as actually listening to the worst Michael Jordan. Did you, ever, did you listen to Michael Jordan's like Hall of Fame induction speech? I mean, just the most ungracious induction speech ever. Instead of saying, thanks, guys, I know I'm the greatest. Now let's just confirm. Yeah. Just something. I, instead, he gets up to give his speech, and he lists all the coaches who cut him, all the people that were played ahead of him. I mean, he just remembered all of it. And when you read stuff, I read a book recently about the dream team, the first 1992 uh, dream team of, of pro athletes that went uh, to the Olympics, whatever. And there, there's all the stuff about Jordan. He was that guy. So driven, so driven by status. One more ring, one more championship. Magic had five, I'm going to get six. I mean, that's how he worked. And, and you, you might know people like this even in the business community. There are ways to work hard from good motivations, and there are ways to work hard from unhealthy motivations. Places where actually you start to look for things to be the source, things to be the source for protection and provision and healing and guidance, but it actually comes from a deep wound. It comes from a deep wound very often. A place of saying, well, my parents never did this. My so-and-so never did this, and so-and-so never did this, and so I will work hard to get the stuff because once I have the stuff, it won't let me down. Until it does. Until there are illnesses that no money can buy the cure for. Until there are tragedies that no status gave you a hall pass from. And then all of a sudden you're like, the things that we look to for protection, provision, healing, and guidance will fail us. There's no way to ultimately secure your life with stuff. And so our final recourse when everything else has failed is to shut out the world and to say, okay, the only person I can count on is me. People have let me down. Stuff has let me down. The market crashed. This happened. That happened. Clients bailed. Blah, blah, blah. Fine. But I will always be there for me. Now, uh, Jonas, as an eight-year-old, he's been involved in a lot of sports stuff. And so somewhere along the way, it, we discovered that uh, several of the boys have like sort of like a pump-up song that they listen to before games or on the week. And I'm thinking, you're eight. How do you have like a pump-up song, you know? Like, and, uh, and so one of the songs that was kind of going around was a, a song that you may be familiar with called Believer by Imagine Dragons. And if you know the song, the chorus goes, pain, you make me a, you make me a believer. And you're like, wow. So there's something about hearing your eight-year-old walk around the house singing that. <laughs> you're like, 
I don't know about the pain. You make me a believer. Like, maybe we should talk about this song. So I am that dad that will Google song lyrics. Like, I'm that guy. And so we're like, okay, let's, let's look at this song. What, what, what is this song about? You know, like, what's this song actually saying? And so the song goes, first things first. I'm going to say all the words inside my head. I'm fired up and I'm tired of the way that things have been. Oh, the way that things have been. Oh, second thing, second, don't you tell me what you think that I can be. Now, this is the line that got my attention. Okay. Don't you tell me what you think that I can be. I'm the one at the sale. I'm the master of my sea. Oh, the master of my sea. And then you're like, okay, 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 what else? And he starts singing quicker. I was broken from a young age, taking my sulking to the masses, write down my poems for the few that looked at me, took to me, shook to me, feeling me, singing from my heartache, from the pain, taking up my message from the veins, speaking my lesson from the brain, seeing the beauty through the pain. You make me, you make me. And you're like, okay, okay, all right. You're like, what's going on here? I mean, what's he a believer in? What's the pain he's dealing with? I mean, it's clear this guy's been through something. And so I am that dad who not only Googles song lyrics, but Googles interviews, you know. So I was like, what's this, who's this songwriter? And I'm curious, songwriter myself in my own day, back in the day. So I, you know, searching for interviews and turns out that the guy who wrote this deals with chronic pain. Okay, that's, hard. that's, that's a difficult situation. And talks about how the experience of, of living with chronic pain taught him to be a believer in himself. And there's something inspiring about that. I mean, listen, there, it, it's, I, for all of the, the stuff we might want to say about these songs, it, there is something inspiring to, to hear songs about people being an overcomer and being a champion and being a fighter and, you know, saying, yes, I realized how strong I was that I could overcome this chronic pain. I mean, there's something beautiful about that. And yet, even that way of thinking has its limits. So what happens if you are a believer in yourself? What happens if the pain in your life has taught you to believe not in God, not in anyone else, not, not, but only in yourself? Can you really meet your own needs? Can you really be there for yourself in the way that even you long for? And I think that in the end, we'll discover that the worst God there is is ourself. And we're the worst tyrant of a God there could ever be. And so we trade all these gods that we can't see for the God that we see in the mirror and we think, yeah, I got you, until you realize that, oh, that was awful. That you find that you yourself can't deliver on the things that you long for. We cannot even give ourselves the protection, provision, healing, and guidance that we ultimately long for. So as much as the message of human confidence and human triumph is inspiring, we would be dishonest if we didn't also say, and yet. And yet it has its limits. And yet you cannot actually love yourself with the love that you long for. And yet you cannot actually care for yourself in the way that you actually long for. You, that it takes someone outside, someone beyond Someone above, someone deeper who knows more. And so Ezekiel 34, verse 10, listen to what God says. He says, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, 
I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. Do you hear that? God takes it personally. For all the people that have failed you in your life, for all the friends that have been family and for all the stuff, for all the ways that you have let yourself down, God takes it personally. God takes it personally. He's not distant from afar kind of saying, wow, that was rough. Better luck next time. Keep on trying. You're a fighter. God says, no, I'm going to come myself. I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. And then he says, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I, 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 and he keeps going. He says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them with good pasture. This is starting to sound like Psalm 23 now. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down. You make me lie down in green pastures. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on a rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I will feed them in justice. How many times is the Lord himself saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. If you've ever felt alone in the world, if you've ever felt hurt and let down and disappointed and thought that your only option was to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and to say, I will, God is the greater I am who says, I will, on your behalf. God is the greater I am who says, I will, on your behalf. Jesus has come to shepherd us himself. Jesus has come. Now, all of a sudden, when you hear the words in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, all of a sudden now you're not just imagining gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's so calm and so peaceful that even lambs fall asleep in his arms. And you realize that that's not it at all. What Jesus is saying is, Yahweh made a promise generations ago, and I am that promise come true. I am that promise come true. And sometimes, I said this last week, sometimes in our world, we hear voices all around us that say, oh, Jesus, I loved Jesus. But man, that Paul was a real troublemaker inventing this whole religion of Christianity. Jesus never wanted to start a religion. Jesus never claimed to be God. You're missing the message of the Gospels. Because when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, that's not Paul inserting his theology. That's, that's Jesus saying, Yahweh made a promise, and I am how Yahweh keeps his promise. I am God in the flesh, come to shepherd you myself. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd. And you ought to hear in this metaphor, not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but Jesus, the fierce protector. Jesus, the faithful provider. Jesus, the only healer. Jesus, the truest guide. Jesus, the good shepherd. That's the power of it. He's come to shepherd us himself. I remember um, a couple years ago reading the Harry Potter books. Um, 
also because Holly and I were talking about, should we let our kids read this? I mean, we've heard a lot of bad things. I don't know. And I, I said, well, I'll just read it first and see what I think. And uh, so I read book one. And I was like, that's pretty good. I kind of like that one. That Dumbledore chap, you know. <laughs> I read book two. I was like, oh, that was, that was good. Now, book three, I was reading on a train in England. It had a little extra sauce while I was reading it. Like, you know, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and not only was I on a train in England, I was headed to King's Cross Station. It's just like you couldn't, it was just amazing. And not only was I headed to King's Cross, I was coming from Durham, where Durham Cathedral is where the, some of the scenes in the first few movies are filmed. So I'm like fully in the zone here. I mean, I, it's like, I, in my mind, I've, I'm leaving Hogwarts, going back to the Dursleys, you know. I mean, I mean, I'm there. And not only am I reading it on a train in England, leaving Durham on the way to King's Cross Station, I'm reading it while listening to, like, a worship soundtrack, like an instrumental worship Because, again, that's me. I, I don't listen to Imagine Dragons. I listen to, like, worship instrumental, you know. <laughs> and, I'm re- and I get to the part of the story in book three where Harry's trying to conjure up the Patronus charm. Now, I'm going to assume that, that some of you may not know the backdrop of this. But in book three, you get introduced to these evil characters called Dementors. And Dementors are the things that, they're dark, ghostly creatures that feed on the pain in your life. And they're designed to sort of literally suck out all of the joy and happiness from you. And in in other interviews, J.K. Rowling said things like that she meant for the Dementors to speak to us about the way that long seasons of discouragement can rob us of joy and talks about her own struggle a little bit. And so... In the books, the only way to prevent the Dementors from killing you is by being able to call up a Patronus charm. And a Patronus, as you might expect, means something about a patron, someone who is a defender and a protector. In fact, the thing they're supposed to say to call up the Patronus is they're supposed to say, expecto Patronum. You don't have to be a Latin genius. To say that loosely, expecto patronum is something like, come deliverer. Let my deliverer come. Now this sounds very much to me like the Psalms. This sounds very much to me like the cry of a people saying, will my deliverer come? When is my deliverer coming? How long, O Lord? Only this is more of a prayer, come deliverer. And Harry is unable to do this because he doesn't have enough hopeful experiences in the cachet of his life experience. Doesn't have enough. So conjuring up hope is not easy for Harry. Come deliver it. He just can't get it. In fact, he's got much more pain that the Dementors can feed off of. And there's this moment where he's feeling the press of the Dementors. And he's trying to do this thing. And he sees from across the, the pond, across this lake, someone else is doing it. And someone else is doing it, and it makes this shield of protection over him. And in the moment, he's convinced that it's his father, even though his father's dead, he's convinced it's my dad, it's my father's love that somehow, miraculously, is casting a protection over me. And so he's like, wow, I've been saved. Turns out, as you read on in the book, that actually there's some time travel stuff. Time travel stuff always loses me. 
I'm like, oh, wait a minute, is it future Harry Pastor? I mean, I don't know what's happening. But somehow, it's actually Harry himself protecting himself. But the point of the story, the point of the scene is that in that moment, he believes his father's love is protecting him. And that gives him the hope to be safe. And when that occurred to me, I'm, as I'm reading this on the train, coming back from Durham, on the way to King's Cross, with worship music in my ears, I start weeping. Just, I just lose it, start weeping. And I was probably 37 or so when, when this occurred, a couple years ago. But it occurred to me, all of a sudden I had flashed back in my mind 20 years earlier, as a 17-year-old kid, leaving Malaysia, getting on a plane, flying across the world, showing up for college, not knowing anybody there. And even though as a 37-year-old, being alone, traveling, it, it didn't feel the same way. In that moment, I felt the Father say, I've always been watching over you. I've always been protecting you. You didn't always see it. You thought you were on your own to fend for yourself, but I've always been the one throwing up the shield over you. I've always been the one spreading the canopy over you. A year or so after that experience, I was talking to our girls, Sophia and Nora, about this scene because they had a, a, a friend at their school that had died in an untimely, tra really tragic way. And, and we were talking about how to not let sadness and the feeling of aloneness in the world overtake you. And I start telling them about my Harry Potter spiritual experience, you know, with, with the Lord. And I'm crying as I'm talking to them and I'm saying, girls, mom and I are doing everything that we can so that you believe that you are loved. But even if our love fails you, we want you to believe that there is a God whose love never fails. That there's a Father whose love never fails. And even if we haven't done everything perfectly, we just want you to believe there is a defender. There is a guardian. There is a shepherd. There is someone watching over you. God takes this stuff personally. Personally. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And just so you know how good I am, I'm the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Not only am I not the shepherd who takes from his sheep, like the bad shepherds in Ezekiel, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And when you look at Psalm 23 a little more closely, you realize how Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep because Jesus actually experiences everything that's the opposite for the first part of Psalm 23. Instead of saying, I shall not want, Jesus on the cross says, I thirst. One of the seven last words, a way of speaking to profound lack, a thirst. Psalmist says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Psalmist says, you lead me beside quiet waters. Jesus keeps showing up in stormy seas. The Psalmist says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus was led down the road of suffering, the way that would be called later in Latin, the Via Dolorosa. The psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
Jesus didn't walk through the valley of a shadow, but up the hill of the skull, Golgotha itself. The psalmist said, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus said, yeah, I know. I saw Judas right there, dipping his bread in the cup. The psalmist said, my cup runs over. Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But on Sunday morning, goodness and mercy did chase Jesus down. The translation in English is so tame. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. In the Hebrew, it's stronger than that. That word for mercy is chesed, the steadfast, unfailing, never letting go love of God, the loyal covenant love of God. And the psalmist says, the loyal, steadfast love of God not follows me, pursues me. It's the same word that is sometimes used of persecutors. And the psalmist says, I feel like there's persecutors tailing me, but I know it's your hesed. I know it's your unfailing love that is chasing me down, that in the end, the loyal love of God is the thing that will track us down. And on Easter Sunday morning, the loyal love of God tracked Jesus down in the grave and raised him up again. So that the voice from heaven that said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus came out of the waters of baptism years earlier. Is now shown to be true when he calls Jesus up out of the grave. And that same love is the love that's chasing you down. I don't know if you caught this in Ezekiel 34, but for all the repeated I will statements that God makes, the one that he says over and over again is about how he will seek. I will seek. He says other things, I'll provide, I'll bandage, I'll heal. But the thing that he says multiple times is, I will seek. I will seek. And now all of a sudden you remember the story Jesus told about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek the one. Now all of a sudden you understand why Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. If there's one thing we know about Jesus, the good shepherd, it's that, it's that he's coming after you. He's coming after you. And his coming after you is proof of the Father watching over you. You're surrounded on every side, covered by the Father's love, pursued by Jesus, the good shepherd himself. You might as well surrender. You might as well give up all the other things you've asked to be shepherds in your life. You might as well turn away from the stuff or the status or the people that you've asked to be ultimate shepherds. And give in to the good shepherd.